Well, it's already been alluded to a little bit uh, throughout this first part of the service, but it, it is true that in the Christian life we do sometimes have wonderful mountaintop experiences. Uh, maybe some come to mind in your Christian journey, if you are a Christian. Uh, perhaps it was that conference that you went to, the times of preaching were just uh, really encouraging, the times of singing just really ministered to you in a really wonderfully refreshing way. Maybe you can remember uh, some particular moments. Maybe perhaps you just spoke about a, a time when you were on top of a mountain or on a beach uh, and you had uh, some quiet time with God where you were just blown away by the wonder of his creation. And maybe for you it was when you were uh, preparing to share your testimony and get baptised. Uh, and that really is just branded into your mind as a tremendously encouraging time in your life, in your, sp in your Christian life in, in particular. Uh, perhaps you, you're someone who's been on a short-term mission trip. You went to the trip, oh, I'm not sure whether I want to go. You come back, came back absolutely on fire for Jesus. You're kind of thinking to yourself, who wouldn't give themselves to full-time gospel ministry? What kind of crazy person wouldn't do that? Right, sometimes in the Christian life we do have these wonderful mountaintop experiences. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, but most of the time we don't. Most of the time we don't live up on the mountaintop but down in the valley. Uh, the valley which is not so glorious. The, the valley which is full of sin and sorrow and suffering. And it's really hard down in the valley. The, the valley where uh, you feel overwhelmed not just by the, the kind of sin out there in the world around you but the sin that uh, kind of feels dominant in your own life. Uh, the valley where the continuous stream of sorrows just, just sometimes is overwhelming. Uh, the valley where the weight of suffering in your life is sometimes so great, uh, you just sometimes feel like you want to throw in the towel. Is it really worth going on? What do you do when you're in the valley? When you're in the valley of sin and sorrow and suffering? Today's passage, I think, has a simple message, which is live a life of humble faith in Jesus. Uh, simple to say... Not so simple to live out, I admit that, but live a life of humble faith in Jesus. You can see there's three points mainly in the outline. Humbly come to Jesus, humbly follow Jesus, and humbly receive from Jesus. So first, we're going to spend most of our time in the first story in this passage, verses 14 to 20, where we see that when you're in the valley, you should humbly come to Jesus, for he is the powerful Son of God. Uh, notice uh, the massive contrast here between uh, Jesus' uh, transfiguration, that glorious moment up on the mountain in verses 1 to 13, uh, and the scene down here in the valley. Whether the transfiguration happened on the mountain, this is down on the valley. That's a contrast in itself. Uh, the transfiguration is full of glory and splendor and wonder, uh, whereas this scene uh, is full of pain and suffering. That's what's dominant. In the transfiguration, God the Father is pleased with Jesus, his Son. Whereas in this scene, the Father is far from pleased with his Son, filled with grief at the condition of his Son. Because in the transfiguration, there's a perfect and glorious Son, whereas in this story, there's a broken and almost distorted Son. It's really clear that Matthew's put these stories right next to each other uh, to tell us that in the Christian life, if you want to enjoy the glory of the mountain, you first have to go through the sin and sorrow and suffering, just the, the kind of mess of the valley. That's how things work. 
Uh, in verse 14, look at verse 14. Peter, James and John and Jesus have come down from the mountain and a man approaches Jesus. Literally, he kind of throws himself at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, have mercy on me. Uh, in general, I reckon fathers are probably the last people on earth who'd want to beg for help in public. You know, fathers, uh, particularly this man, you, you see he's, he's begging in front of this large crowd. He's begging in front of Jesus' disciples who are all men. He's begging in front of his son, which for a dad, it's a pretty hard thing to do. But this father, uh, he, he's kind of desperate, isn't he? All sense of pride, of being able to fix things himself, of self-sufficiency, all of that has been broken down by, by the weight of his son's suffering over time. Uh, so he begs Jesus, Lord, have mercy Lord, have mercy. You might want to write down Psalm 123, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 123, verses 1 and 2, because this Father's plea for mercy reminds me of what the psalmist says there. Uh, The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their masters, uh, as the eyes of female slaves look to the hand of their mistress, So our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shows us mercy. That's what this father's like. Just as a slave looks to the hand of their master, knowing that they're absolutely dependent on receiving mercy from their master's hand, so also this father looks to Jesus' hand and knows that Jesus is his only hope. He's absolutely dependent on receiving mercy from Jesus. And in verse 15, you start to get a sense of why this father's so desperate. Verse 15, he says, My son has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. And we don't know for sure, but probably uh, this son has some sort of epilepsy. Uh, and imagine, I guess, uh, imagine for a moment just how exhausting. I mean, of course, the, the son, it's his suffering that matters most. Uh, But put yourself in the shoes of this father, or or presumably the the mother's still on the scene too. It must have been incredibly exhausting. Taking care of their son would have been a full-time job. Always on edge. You never know when the next seizure's going to come along. And you never know what hazards are going to be nearby when the next seizure happens. Uh, Imagine the burns all over his body. It's not been uncommon for for him to fall into a fire. But what do you do as as a father, as a mother? You know, you've got to have a fire in the house to keep the family warm. You've got to cook with a fire, and yet the the, the fire is so incredibly dangerous for your son, whom you love. That must have been really tough. You really need your son to pitch in, to go down to the lake and catch some fish, or even out on the boat and catch some fish for the family. Can't have any passengers in family life in this day and age. And yet the water's so dangerous for your son. At any moment he might fall in. That must have been exhausting to live with. And incredibly heartbreaking. I'm sure this is true for mums too. But I reckon dads perhaps find it particularly hard to see their children suffering and not be able to fix them. Uh, something about being a man, we like to fix things in general. 
that's probably why our, our, our one thing our wives generally find really frustrating. Like we, we just want to fix them if they've got a problem going on, and we struggle. Oh, maybe it's just me. Kid's got a, a cold, even uh, just something minor, and you just want to be able to fix it. Well, this father has come to the terms with the fact that he can't fix his son. Over and over again, uh, that's been shown. And if you look at verse 16, the heartbreak's just been piled on because now he knows Jesus' disciples can't fix his son either. Right back in Matthew chapter 10, uh, you can flick back to that later on, but you, you might remember that Jesus sent his apostles out and he gave them this special authority to be able to heal the sick and drive out demons. Uh, and they had wonderful success in their mission. Uh, so perhaps this father had heard about that. He, uh, while Jesus and Peter and James and John are up the mountain, he brings his son to Jesus' disciples, hoping that they'll finally be able to do something. Uh, but they can't. They can't do anything either. Jesus is his only hope. And perhaps that's how you feel about some of the problems or difficulties that are in your life right now. Jesus is your only hope. Some of your problems just seem impossible to overcome, absolutely insurmountable. And maybe you think even Jesus can't help you. I surely can help everyone else, but well, my problems are too big. I want to encourage you to read through Matthew's Gospel. I doubt that your problems are too big. Jesus seems to specialise in dealing with the biggest of problems. Just think about the people who, are, who come to Jesus. People who are deaf, people who have seizures, people who have had lifelong hemorrhages, people who are paralysed, people who are blind. The message is clear. No problem is too big for Jesus. Jesus is the powerful Son of God who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And when people come to Jesus uh, humbly like this Father does, Jesus never ever turns them away. If you come to Jesus humbly with all of your sin and sorrow and suffering, he'll be full of mercy and compassion towards you. He won't turn you away. If only, we, if only you would stop trying to sort out your life by yourself. Stop trying to fix everything yourself. And humbly come to Jesus. Acknowledge that he is your only hope. And just a little word here. that uh, Please don't be discouraged if in the past one of Jesus' followers has let you down. You know, you, you took your needs to a Christian and they were really dismissive. They didn't pray for you. They didn't care for you. Or, or perhaps you took your uh, needs to one of Jesus' leaders, uh, and a pastor, and they let you down. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus' disciples are the same as Jesus or, or Jesus' leaders are the same as Jesus. It's very clear in this passage that Jesus' apostles get it wrong. They fail, but Jesus gets it right. So please don't be discouraged if you've been let down by Jesus' followers or, or Jesus' leaders, humbly come to our Lord Jesus, who's the powerful Son of God, who's not only able to help this Father's Son, but he's willing to help his, this Father's Son. He's full of mercy, Jesus, for those who come to him with humble need. Right? But he's not full of mercy for those who come to him or who are stuck uh, in stubborn unbelief. 
But look there in verse 17. You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? That's pretty strong language. How long shall I put up with you? He's clearly getting frustrated with the lack of faith, not just from his disciples, he's going to kind of deal with them in a second, uh, but with this whole generation of people. Kind of unbelief, uh, refusing to trust and follow Jesus, is just pervasive in this generation. So particularly if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to look again at verse 17 and ask yourself, how long do you think Jesus should be patient with you? What do you think is reasonable? How long should he put up with your stubborn unbelief? Your refusal to trust and follow him? That's a pretty confronting question, but it's, it's right here in the passage, isn't it? Jesus is extremely patient. Much more patient than you and I. But as Romans 2 verse 4 says, his patience is supposed to lead us to repent and to turn back to him, to trust in him, to follow him. And if you don't do that, we've seen in the previous passages the past couple of weeks that one day Jesus' patience will run out and he will return as judge, the glorious judge, to give each and every person what they deserve. What they deserve for refusing to believe in him. So how long do you think Jesus should put up with you? Verse 17. And you might feel like, well, uh, you know, my life's, my, I've got all of my life ahead of me. All these years, oh, I can have some fun now and sort out the Jesus thing later on. But if you talk to, to someone who's nearing the end of their life, uh, they'll tell you how, how their life has just flown by. The Bible describes life here on earth as just a mist. You know, here one moment, gone the next. So what's stopping you from trusting in Jesus today? Because in the end, today is the only day that you know absolutely for sure that you have. How long should Jesus put up with you? What's stopping you from humbly coming to Jesus today and embracing his mercy? At the end of verse 18, seemingly out of nowhere, look at the end of verse 18. Matthew says that Jesus rebukes the demon. You're kind of like, oh, where'd this demon come from? You know, we've heard this talk about sickness and the boy, we think, oh, he's got, leper, he's got epilepsy, he's sick. But now we have this talk of Jesus rebuking a demon. Now, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, you might just have questions about this whole idea of demons. Perhaps you think, well, uh, demons are—they're just kind of—you've got to be irrational to believe in demons. Only people who aren't on about logic and reason believe in demons. So I just want to kind of ask you the question, something to think about. Can you rationally disprove the existence of God? Just kind of through a logical argument. Prove that God doesn't exist. I don't think you can. I think even the most hardened atheist would admit that you can't do that. So if you can't use pure reason to logically prove that God doesn't exist as a personal supernatural good being, 
then how can you uh, say it's irrational to believe in demons? How can you prove that demons as personal, supernatural, evil beings don't exist? You might not like the idea that they exist. You might think they don't. But I don't think you can say it's irrational. And you might say, well, it might not be irrational, but it's certainly primitive. You know, we're much more enlightened than the people in Jesus' day. Back then, they thought everything was caused by a demon. Certainly, every illness was caused by a demon. But that's not true either. Right here, if you look uh, earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, uh, Matthew records this kind of summary of Jesus' ministry. Matthew 4, verse 24, he says, News about Jesus spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all uh, who were ill uh, with various diseases, those suffering from severe pain, uh, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, uh, and the paralyzed, and Jesus healed them. You should see there, uh, Matthew, I think, carefully distinguishes between a whole lot of different illnesses. He doesn't just kind of lump them all together under the banner of demons. It's just untrue to say uh, that the the, the people in Jesus' day were unable to distinguish these things. In the story in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus can clearly distinguish the difference uh, between someone who's simply suffering from seizures uh, and someone whose seizures are somehow connected to the presence of a demon. That's something that Jesus is able to do. Well, let me be very clear. I think it's not something that we're able to do. At least I think it'd be very dangerous for us to do that. The fact that you're going blind, Aaron, is because of the presence of a demon. I'm not sure you can say that confidently. Right? It's very dangerous for us to, to make this connection between someone's physical or mental illness and the presence of a demon. But Jesus can do it. Jesus clearly can do it as the powerful son of God. And so he rebukes this demon and the boy is healed. You might have more questions about that later on. It's a big area. Verse 19, Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, why couldn't we drive out the demon? And Jesus says, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed... Uh, You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, I think it's important to recognize that when Jesus rebukes uh, his disciples here for their little faith, I think he's not so much concerned about the quantity of their faith, but the quality of their faith. But he's not calling them to kind of take a, a big, deep look inside themselves and drum up more faith. If only they had more faith. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. In fact, that's part of the problem. They're looking at themselves too much. They're looking at themselves when they should be looking to Jesus. They're they're proudly putting their confidence in themselves and their power, uh, perhaps in being able to say, in Jesus' name or something like that. You know, that Jesus has given them this uh, authority back in Matthew 10. But somehow they've gotten the idea that it's actually about them and the stuff that they do. That's how the power comes. And so they're proudly putting confidence in themselves and their power rather than humbly putting their confidence in Jesus and in his power. That's the contrast in the passage, you see. The father humbly comes to Jesus and is absolutely dependent on him. And what does he see? He sees Jesus unleash his power. Wonderful. 
But the disciples proudly uh, look to themselves and they've got no power at all. That's Jesus' issues. His disciples have developed a mountain-sized faith in themselves and they can't move this demon. And he's saying, if only you could develop a mustard seed-sized faith in me, you'd be able to move not just this demon, but a mountain. That's his point. Now, of course, Jesus isn't expecting us to kind of head out to Mount Dandenong and pray really hard and kind of just move over a little bit because it helped the rainfall in my suburb. You know, he's not expecting us to do that. This is an illustration, right? Mountains here are an illustration of seemingly insurmountable obstacles, insurmountable difficulties. So if you have humble faith in Jesus, he's saying, uh, the powerful Son of God, you can overcome even the most insurmountable difficulties. Nothing is impossible. But, it's a pretty big but, isn't it? But, uh, there's no guarantee that Jesus will move every mountain that you want him to move. It's possible, but no guarantees. I say, how do we pray? How do we pray when we're confronted with these mountains of mountainous problems in our life, massive difficulties in our life? Well, I want to suggest, uh, you can read the passage later on, I'll suggest that we pray like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember Jesus' prayer, as Jesus is uh, faced with the kind of mountain of the cross, uh, a massive moment of suffering and difficulty, uh, he asked his Father for what he wanted. He said, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Likewise, you can say to God, your Father, Father, if it's possible, please take this from me. You can say that. Please take this depression from me or this disability from me. Please take this anxiety from me. Take this chronic fatigue from me. Take this pain from me. Take, uh, heal this broken marriage. Father, if it's possible, please take those things from me. And in one sense, every, all those things are possible for God to take away. Right? Nothing's impossible. So by all means, ask God to move those mountains in your life, to move the mountains that you want moved, but then humbly surrender to the love and goodness and wisdom of his will. Like Jesus, who said, not yet, yet not as I will, but as you will. It just might be that it's your heavenly Father's will for, for that mountain to stay put in your life. You can ask him to move it. Nothing wrong with that. But then you humbly surrender to his will. You might not understand why he wants it to be there. But it was our Father's will that Jesus would go to the mountain of the cross. right? And that's what assures you that if God doesn't move the mountains that you want him to move in your life, he must have loving and good and wise reasons for leaving them there. He must. He's shown his hand at the cross. He's shown you he's loving. He's shown you he's good. He's shown you his wisdom. And so he must have some sort of reason for why he's leaving the mountains that you want moved in your life. You see. And so ask, uh, ask your God to move those mountains, but then surrender to his will. 
And when you find yourself in the valley, humbly come to Jesus, for he's the powerful son of God. And humbly follow Jesus, uh, the suffering son of man. If you look in verses 22 and 23, you see that Matthew doesn't tell us uh, that after Jesus' rebuke about their little faith, uh, that they, they go on, on a kind of, uh, they become giants of the faith and they go on a, a kind of massive spree of mountain moving miracles. You know, changing the, the topography all over the land. No, he, he's kind of, like, he doesn't say that. Right? Jesus doesn't want his disciples getting too caught up with the power and glory of the kingdom. We'll hear more about that in the next two weeks. Because he knows that even though he's the powerful son of God, he's also the suffering son of man. So in verse 22, he reminds his disciples, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Uh, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Right? He reminds his disciples once more of the basic shape of the Christian life. His death must come before his resurrection. The cross before the crown, the suffering before the glory. And likewise for them. Right? If they want to enjoy the glory of one day taking up their crown and sharing in the kingdom of Jesus, the powerful Son of God, they must first be prepared to take up their cross and follow in the footsteps of Jesus, the suffering Son of Man. And Jesus just drums this into his disciples. If you think back, Matthew 16, verse 16, Peter has that climactic moment, mountaintop experience, confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Son of the living God. Uh, they get this glimpse of the glory of who Jesus is. Uh, and straight away, Jesus says, don't, say to, don't tell anyone about it. Uh, and let me tell you how I must suffer and die. Matthew 17, verses 1 to 8. Peter, James, and John up the mountain. Glory, kind of this wonderful glimpse of Jesus' glory. Verses 1 to 8. Verse 9, Jesus says, don't tell anyone about it. And let me tell you how I'm going to follow in the footsteps of John the Baptist. John was rejected and he, and he suffered and he was killed. And I'm going to be just like him. And here the same, verses 14 to 20, the disciples see this wonderful glimpse of Jesus' power and glory when he heals the man. And Jesus straight away teaches them uh, that he's the son of man who must uh, be rejected and suffer and die. This is the shape of the Christian life. Good Friday comes before Easter Sunday. Uh, cross before the crown, weakness before power, brokenness before healing. You humble yourself before one day you'll be exalted by God. Suffering now, glory later, by and large. And at the end of verse 23, it's very clear that Jesus' disciples don't get it because they are filled with grief. Well, they don't like this idea of suffering now, glory later. They're a lot like us. They, they want a bit more glory now. A bit more glory now. We understand that. Right? Every fibre of our being tells us to be on about getting glory now. I've got this... Uh, Thanks to Mike for getting this. Uh, it's not quite as long as I would have liked, but I left my extra long rope at home. Some of you have seen this before. Uh, but you can see uh, that there's this red bit on the end. That's your life. You didn't know that, but there it is. And uh, this is uh, eternity. Right? Can you stretch that out as far as it goes? Excellent. Okay. Now, what our culture says to us uh, is you ought to do everything you can to get as much glory as you can in the red bit. 
Right? You've you got, uh, you got to pursue career success, you've got to accumulate wealth, you've got to get as many possessions as you can, uh, you've got to leave a legacy, you've got to make a name for yourself, you've got to do everything you can to get as much glory as you can in the red bit. Reject Jesus and live for the now. Get glory now. And what Jesus says is, follow me, suffer now, and get glory later. And so that's your choice, really. Glory in the red bit and suffering for eternity, or suffering in the red bit and glory for eternity. I want to suggest that you ought not trade off a bit of glory, you know, like don't trade off this glory for that glory, you see. It doesn't seem like a wise investment. I'm not very savvy with finances and things. I'm getting some advice. But it seems to me that you'd be better off embracing suffering now, following in the footsteps of the suffering Son of Man, that you might share in eternal glory later. You see. And Jesus' disciples aren't satisfied with that. They want to get glory now. They want Jesus to get glory now. But Jesus says you have to follow in the footsteps of the suffering Son of Man. And if you haven't already done so, let me urge you to do that. Humbly follow Jesus, the suffering Son of Man. And when you find yourself in the valley, you humbly come to Jesus with your needs. You, you humbly trust and follow Jesus. Uh, and you humbly receive from Jesus uh, the unique Son of the Father. Uh, look in verse 24. Jesus and his disciples are back in Capernaum. Uh, in many ways, Capernaum was the home base of Jesus' ministry. You know, the Son of Man did not have a house, a place to lay his head. Uh, but Peter did have a house, and it happened to be in Capernaum. Uh, so they, they spent a bit of time in, in Capernaum. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are there uh, in Peter's house uh, and some tax collectors, you know, come knocking on the door uh, and it's time for the annual temple tax. Right? The temple tax, the, the form of this tax was first instituted uh, by God in the law back in Exodus chapter 30 verses 11 to 16. As you remember last week, we were talking about the tabernacle being built. That was in Exodus 19 to 25. And in the midst of the tabernacle being built, God instituted this levy, this tax, which said that every Jewish male over the age of 20 had to pay half a shekel at every census towards the maintenance and ministry of the tabernacle and later on the temple. By Jesus' day, the requirement was half a shekel every year or two drachmas. I'm not really an expert on all the coins uh, in Jesus' day, but Adam is, so you should talk to him. Anyway, uh, so two drachmas. Uh, so presumably the tax is due, the tax collectors come knocking on the door, uh, Peter answers the door as the homeowner, and they say to Peter, is your teacher going to pay the tax? And in verse Peter, uh, 25, Peter says, well, yes. Now, I don't know whether Jesus supernaturally knew what Peter's answer was or whether the house was, you know, he overheard Peter at the door. Uh, but you see Peter comes back inside and Jesus says, uh, what do you think, Simon? And, you know, if you're in Peter's shoes, you've got to be thinking, surely I haven't got it wrong again. You know, Peter's not having a good run. Anyway, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children, which is literally from, from their own sons, uh, or from others, which is literally uh, from those who belong to someone else. And so Peter says, well, well, from others. That's where the kings of, earth, uh, the, kings of the earth collect their taxes. And so Jesus says then, the sons are exempt. Right? The sons are free from taxes. 
So maybe it's a little bit confusing this, but maybe you can see Jesus' basic point, uh, which is the sons of earthly tax, uh, earthly kings are exempt from any taxes that their fathers impose. Likewise, he, as the unique son of God, the heavenly king, is exempt from this temple tax, uh, which was originally imposed by his father, his father in heaven. Uh, but in verse 27, we, we see how humble Jesus is, even though he's not obligated to pay the tax. Uh, he makes sure the tax is paid anyway. Well, he, doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to cause offence. He doesn't want to put unnecessary stumbling blocks uh, in the way of people engaging with him and his message. Uh, so he organises for Peter to pay the tax. Uh, but how would Peter know that Jesus really is exempt from the tax, that he really is the unique son of the Father? Well, first, because God just told him, right, you remember on the mountain, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. So God had kind of been pretty explicit about that. Jesus is my son. Uh, but if that wasn't enough, uh, in verse 27, Jesus demonstrates he's God's son by how he pays the tax. Doesn't he? What, what kind of authority would you expect the, the unique son, the one and only son of the king over all creation to have? What kind of authority? You'd expect him to have authority over all creation, I think. Perhaps even over every single fish. And so just as God had authority over the great fish in the story of Jonah, Jesus demonstrates his authority over this fish in, the, in Lake Galilee. Jesus proves by this miracle that he really is the unique son of the Father, therefore he doesn't have to pay the tax. But there's another aspect to this whole story of the, the coin in the mouth of the fish. So this, this was really, honestly, this was troubling me during the week. I, I, I don't know, if you read this, you're just kind of like, this is a hard story to kind of get your head around. So I think, if you go with me with this, I'll try to be as clear as possible. Through the coin, Jesus provides all that is needed for Peter and himself to fulfill all the legal demands of the temple tax. Right? That, that's what's going on here. But of course, in the bigger picture, Jesus provides all that Peter needs, all that we need to fulfill all the legal demands, not just of this temple tax, but of God's law as a whole. Well, I think that's what's going on. But he does that by providing not just a coin in the mouth of a fish, but by providing his own body hung up on a cross. That's how he does it. And there's hints of that in this passage. For example, why do you think it is that in verse 27, Jesus says, uh, let's pay the tax so that we might not cause offence? But after a little illustration, you might expect Jesus to say, well, I'm the unique son of the Father, so let's pay the tax so that I might not cause offence. Why we? And why does Peter provide uh, Peter in the mouth of the fish with enough money, a four drachma coin, to pay for himself and Peter? Well, that's weird too. Why not Peter just get a coin out of his own pocket? Why does Jesus deliberately include, uh, deliberately provide for Peter? Why, why is he implying that Peter's also exempt from the tax? I think it's because Jesus knows that the freedom that now belongs to him as the unique son of the Father will one day belong to all of his followers. But he knows that, but because he knows that by his death on the cross, he will pay in full the penalty that we owe God. That everything that we're obligated to pay him for our sins under his law. 
Uh, so in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, uh, Jesus says, The Son of Man gave his life as a, as a ransom, as a ransom for many. So the wonder of this passage is that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be free, you can be redeemed, you can be ransomed from every penalty that you owe God under his law. All the legal demands of his law have been paid in full in the death of Jesus. So that you who are an outsider to God's royal house can become an insider to his royal house. You who were an enemy can, be, uh, can become a child of God, literally a son of God of God and with all the rights and privileges of being a son not an eternal son of God Jesus is the unique son of the father but an adopted son of God an adopted child of God and as a child of God God won't tax you that's the point as a child of God God will not tax you he'll only provide for you he has done in his son. All you've got to do is receive it. Receive every spiritual blessing that he's provided for you in Christ. You humbly receive it. So sometimes in the Christian life we have these wonderful mountaintop experiences. And we ought to be thankful for those and perhaps pray for more. Uh, but mostly we don't. The basic shape of the Christian life is the valley before the mountain. We walk through the valley of sin and sorrow and suffering. So when you find yourself in that valley, let me urge you today to live a life of humble faith in Jesus. Humbly come to him, humbly follow him, and humbly receive from him. Receive all that you need from him. Let me pray. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, you know uh, the circumstances of each and every one who is here. You know uh, how much we feel like we're in the valley right now. You know the sin we're struggling with. Uh, you know the sorrows that are burdening us. Uh, you know the suffering that, that makes us feel like we can't go on. Uh, please, Father, move in our hearts by the power of your Spirit to encourage us to live a life of humble faith in your Son. Help us to humbly come to him this day, uh, to humbly commit ourselves to following him this day and to humbly receive from him uh, all the goodness that he promises us. Amen.